This is Meditate and Conversate, a podcast for those invested in wellness and enlightenment. Interviews with experts in their fields and meditations that put theory into practice. Hosted by former news anchor, trauma-sensitive yoga teacher, and designated experience registered yoga teacher 500-hour Lindsay Berusi. There are health topics that completely alter our lives and our relationships that we just don't talk about. Today, we normalize the conversation surrounding male sexual dysfunction and other seemingly taboo men's health topics with urologist Dr. Ryan Dornbeer of Urology Center of Iowa, who is fellowship trained in men's health. Thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. Excited to do it. There are so many different routes that you could have gone. Why specifically were you interested in men's health? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think uh, men's health in general, um, outside of the sexual dysfunction aspects of it, is a, is a little bit of a taboo topic um, when you see how men focus on their health care. Um, it's definitely different than how women focus on their health care. Um, being that two thirds of men don't even make their own healthcare decisions, um, whether it's made by a family member or a wife or a daughter or someone in that regard. So uh, there was always this aspect of a lack of knowledge on a, a man's part about uh, their own health. And so more and more, if you look at the realm of urology, it's become a growing and growing topic in our own field um, to say that, well, we deal with men's issues on a fairly regular basis. So shouldn't we be at the forefront of handling men's health issues, whether it's uh, basic continuing health consciousness, but also dealing with their sexual issues and, and those kind of things. So I think that's kind of what drove me towards the field. Um, and I had the opportunity to uh, go on into fellowship and train specifically in this area um, with a lot of the sexual health and taboo topics, like you mentioned, um, being a major uh, player in that fellowship. Let's start unpacking a little bit of what you see on a normal basis. What is one of the most prevalent issues that you find uh, men are having trouble with that they're not talking about? Uh, I think it really goes it goes down to those taboo topics and their erectile health and their overall quality of life from a you know a sexual standpoint. Um, I think a lot of men are nervous to broach that conversation with their primary care physician, um, and even when it comes to a urologist, it's always kind of a secondary part of the visit. They'll come in with you know uh, symptoms for for their urinary health, and then at the end of the visit, they'll say something like, "Oh, by the way, I, you know I'm having a little bit." issue with my erections. Um, very rarely is it kind of the presenting sign or presenting reason to come to a visit, um, which men are very used to dealing with the new normal. And so they'll just kind of leave that opinion to themselves until they uh, are really pushed. I was surprised to find while I was looking at all the statistics and information, how prevalent ejaculatory dysfunction is. Can you let us know what yeah. this is and how often you're seeing it? So it, it, it breaks down to um, one, when you talk about pure ejaculatory dysfunction in terms of you know, what does that mean? One, it could be premature ejaculation. It could be delayed ejaculation or it could be an ejaculation, meaning you never uh, 
ejaculate or have an orgasm. Um, the prevalence overall of any three of those kind of categorizations is anywhere from seven to 40%. Obviously the studies on these aren't great because it's usually you know uh, more of a interview type setting or a survey type setting uh, that this information is gleaned from. But in any sexual experience that a man has, you might, you know, have any one of those symptoms. It's what, whether or not it's persistent or if it's, you know, been since the initial sexual encounter, or if it's always been, you know, a problem, or if it's something that's more acquired that's come out along the way. Um, probably the most prevalent one that I see is definitely premature ejaculation. Um, and this can be acquired or kind of a lifelong situation. Um, and usually that's described as what's called a, an ejaculatory latency period or the time between initiation of intercourse to ejaculation of anything less than three minutes. Um, so most men are usually pretty surprised to find that, oh, three minutes is kind of the cutoff. On average, men can quote unquote last for about five minutes. Um, and so you first have to give them that frame of reference. You know, not every guy's gonna you know, be able to last for you know, 15, 20 minutes during any sort of sexual episode. So um, it's important that they have a relative understanding of what exactly is happening compared to other men. But this um, is something you could get treatment for, right? I mean, this isn't something yeah. that you always have to live with. It's absolutely something that can be treated for. And what we find a lot of times, especially in the male with acquired uh, premature ejaculation is that it's associated with erectile dysfunction almost 75% of the time. And the reason that is, and the reason that they're developing premature ejaculation is anyone who's worried about their erectile quality is going to speed up and go faster in an effort to finish before the erectile problem becomes the issue. And so what that we often find is that as long as you treat the erectile dysfunction, the ejaculatory dysfunction goes away one of these ejaculatory dysfunctions that might make it a little harder to conceive a child. Which of those are you seeing? I can imagine that's a little hard on relationships. Yeah, if you have some sort of anejaculation or, or you know, delayed ejaculation or uh, tend to be less common than premature ejaculation, but uh, definitely something that can be stressful. Um, and the fact is some of those stressors can actually be the cause of you know, the anejaculation or the, or the delayed ejaculation. Um, oftentimes that's also associated with other medical comorbidities, whether it's uh, diabetes or in men with depression, um, oftentimes being on uh, uh, SSRI or a serotonin selective reuptake inhibitor um, or tricyclic antidepressant can uh, often lead to those phenomenon. Um, in fact, one of the medical treatments for premature ejaculation is to be put on um, an SSRI or a TCA to uh, help with those uh, premature issues. Yeah, we always say nothing is separate, right? The mind, mm -hmm. the body. <laughs> Absolutely. Each other. Tell us a little bit about erectile dysfunction. You said that was a lot of times uh, intertwined with some of that um, uh, premature ejaculation, but it can be independent. So, I mean, when, when you look at the epidemiology of erectile dysfunction, it's obviously more common as you get older. Um, studies are fairly old in terms of giving an actual number of men in the United States, but it's probably about 10% of men in the United States, but probably more than that have some degree 
um, of diminished erectile quality. Now, obviously everything exists on a spectrum. Um, you, you don't necessarily have complete lack of erection or completely full erections. It's, it's basically comes down to the definition of an erection capable or for satisfactory sexual intercourse. Uh, when you look at who has that, it's older men, um, but there's also two types of erectile dysfunction, what we call organic and then psychogenic erectile dysfunction. Um, and a lot of times we'll see younger men come into the clinic who are complaining of erectile dysfunction for the first time, and they're in their mid-20s or early 30s, and we don't look at them as necessarily an organic cause or a, a vascular cause or related to other medical comorbidities. Um, but more of a performance anxiety. Men will be able to get erections external to an episode of intercourse, but when they go to engage with a partner, they have difficulty, um, which leads us to believe that it's more of a mind over matter problem. Um, and I often explain it to, to young men in a way that a lot of them understand if you go into a situation that causes you anxiety, you develop that typical fight or flight response and we did not evolve to have an erection when we we're trying to flee from a bear. So if you get that increased sympathetic drive or fight or flight response, then you're naturally going to lose your erection. And so it becomes a, uh, an issue of unpacking that from a mental health standpoint. And you know, where's this anxiety coming from? Where's this uh, aspect of dysfunction coming from that gives you that sense of fight or flight during a, an episode of intercourse. Yeah, that's very interesting. I study a lot about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system mm -hmm. with trauma and how all those things just shut down because you're not really looking for long-term survival anymore. Exactly. You're looking for that short-term survival. Uh, all the literature out there, you know, that I see for ED or erectile dysfunction, it's always like older men and women on the cover. Mm -hmm. at, at what point is it normal to actually lose your erectile function. Is it normal ever? There is a, a growing sense of as you get older, your erectile quality is going to diminish. And that's you know, a, a physiologic aspect of you know, vascular inflow and vascular outflow. As we get older, regardless of how healthy we are, our blood vessels start to stiffen. And in some case we get calcifications or, or plaques in our arteries that make blood flow more difficult. It, cardiac health and erectile health are the same thing. You know, if your heart, if you're on the verge of having a heart attack, your erections probably aren't going to work that well because you're having difficulty getting blood to your heart. It's probably going to be difficult to get blood to your penis. So when you think about erectile function, you have to think about two things. One is the blood inflow blood flows into the penis via your arteries, but also has to stay there. So the, the veins in your penis have to clamp down and, and make sure that the blood stays in the penis to offer a stiff, firm erection for use. As you get older, those things tend to be less flexible and you lose that ability to either bring flood, blood flow in or keep the blood flow trapped. And that's kind of a normal process with aging. It'll happen to some men more than others. Um, and probably men who have other comorbidities like diabetes, heart disease, vascular disease, or could be more predisposed than men who are not in that category. 
There's one other thing that happens with age that I thought was quite normal, but I feel like a lot of my guy friends are a little worried about, and that's testosterone deficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking for like replacements and what they're going to do mm-hmm. if they start to lose uh, very much of their testosterone. What is normal and, and should we be looking for replacements? So it's kind of a, a catch 22 in a certain way. You can have a low testosterone, but if you don't have symptoms of low testosterone, then the idea that we could replace it won't necessarily offer you much benefit. So when someone comes into me complaining of, you know, hey doc, you know, my uh, erections are maybe slightly diminished, but I also just don't feel the desire to engage anymore with, you know, intercourse with, uh, you know, I feel tired at the end of a day, I get to 3 p.m. and I just don't feel the way I used to. That's the kind of symptoms that I think, oh, well, maybe we should check your testosterone. Again, something that happens usually in men later in life, fourth, fifth, sixth decade of life, um, where the access between their brain and their testicles just slows down a little bit. Um, Some have equated to what we call quote unquote andropause um, in which the pituitary hormonal access is slightly disrupted, um, but it also could be primarily testicular failure. And so we check your blood levels and even though we don't want to just treat a number, we consider a testosterone less than 300 to be low testosterone. But I wouldn't treat you unless you are also symptomatic from that. What does that look like, the symptoms? So usually that fatigue, um, in some cases, mental fogginess, a little bit of less mental acuity, uh, decreased libido, Um, But I would say the most common thing that I I hear is guys saying, I just feel so tired at the end of the day. Very interesting. I just talked to someone on the podcast who was talking about perimenopause and it's interesting, Mm -hmm. the parallels with the fatigue and the mental fogginess with that transition. Absolutely. Hormones do a lot to balance out our, our mental capabilities on top of our physical capabilities. So it's important to most of the time people start to recognize their mental failings before they'll start to really notice the physical attributes to low testosterone. The last thing that we had talked about, and I actually know someone who has this, so I'm interested in unpacking it, is Peyronie's disease. Mm -hmm. And this is something that you see fairly often? Uh, All the time. And it's, again, one of those topics that's becoming more and more talked about, partly because, you know, thanks to our advertising friends, it's, you know, being seen on TV more frequently with, with conversations about it, or at least from a, a pharmaceutical standpoint, engaging the topic. Um, so Peyronie's disease is acquired penile curvature, uh, meaning that for a long time you had straight erection, but now you're noticing a curvature. And this curvature could be minor, meaning, you know, less than 30 degrees. Um, or it could be more major, um, even up to 180 degrees where the penis kind of points back at, at, at you um, and overall interrupts your ability to engage in intercourse. Now, the pathophysiology of uh, Peyronie's disease is usually related to a plaque or scar tissue that develops um, along the erectile body of the penis, and that causes uh, some decreased elasticity of that area 
um, which then ultimately when a man gets an erection, that area doesn't stretch and so it curves to that side. Um, usually during the course, there's kind of two phases of Peyronie's disease, what's considered the active phase, which is where the curvature is developing um, and is often associated with pain. Um, and then there's the chronic phase, which is basically the, the curvature is now stabilized and you notice that you know, you're still getting erections in most cases, um, but the curvature persists. What causes that plaque? So there's a lot of theories, but most guys don't really notice it occurring until it's it started. Um, the thought is that it's related to vascular micro traumas or traumas that have occurred, um, you know, here and there during an episode of, of intercourse or a slight bend to the penis during intercourse that can cause uh, inflammation develop, and usually our body is pretty good at getting rid of that inflammation, but then sometimes after repeated episodes, that inflammation builds up and ultimately kind of hits a tipping point where the, the plaque starts to develop um, and the uh, collagen that's inside the, the erectile body of the penis changes and becomes more fibrotic. Is there anything you can do for this? You know, you look at things like prevention. It's hard to be something that you can prevent you can be predisposed to it. Men who have contractures of the hands or contractures of the feet are often predisposed to Peyronie's disease. So it's something to, you know, if you have either one of those things, something to think about or be aware of, but there's really no stopping it in a sense. Um, when we talk about that active phase where the curvature is developing and there's pain, um, you can treat the pain. Unfortunately, there's no way to, no proven way to stop the curvature from occurring. Multiple medications have been tried, both oral and injections, um, but nothing's really panned out. Um, and you know, being a taboo topic in society, clinical trials aren't the greatest for these type of issues. Um, and so therefore, uh, what I offer men who are in the active phase is a medication called pentoxyphylline, um, which is kind of an anti-inflammatory medication. The trials for which were kind of beneficial, but a little bit inconclusive, depending on who you, who you speak with about the trials. But the side effects are minimal, so we're usually okay with offering medications with minimal side effects. Um, when it comes to treatment for the chronic phase, um, those are both injectables, which is a newer medication called Zyaflex, um, in which you inject into the plaque and then do a series of up to four cycles, which a cycle is two injections followed by a period of rest where uh, you do what's called modeling or curve the plaque out to try to massage it out. Um, that medication's shown significant benefit. Um, and then if that doesn't, is not successful, then we kind of talk about surgical options, um, which the surgical options are, each one kind of has their, their plus and minuses. Um, which I talk with every man about who comes in uh, to the clinic. Is there a chance to still have a satisfactory sex life or um, intimacy in any, in any way? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that's you know, the biggest concern most guys come in with is usually by the time they get to me, they're concerned because it's you know, disrupting their life from an intercourse standpoint or the intimacy standpoint. Um, and with appropriate management, we can get men back to a normal sex life.
I imagine that you work closely with some mental health professionals or have some that you quarterback to because <laughs> someone who has, you know, guys don't like talking about these things in general, but I, I know just from being married to someone yeah. that does your job that there can be a lot of mental havoc that goes on with some of these dysfunctions. Yeah, it's, it's important that we, we have, uh, you know, our mental health professionals kind of helping us out with a lot of these issues sometimes as the primary treatment option, but also as a secondary option or a, a complementary option um, to help ease treatment, you know, get over the, the mental health concerns that are associated with a lot of these diagnoses. Um, and the guidelines for these point to, uh, you know, uh, psychosocial help in almost every aspect of them. Do you think there's anything that's important for men or someone who's in a relationship or cares about someone who has these issues to know? I, I think the, the biggest thing is one, discuss it with your partner. Uh, I think that oftentimes goes unrecognized in a relationship, um, especially when it comes to those things like erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation um, that discussing it with your partner can sometimes relieve those anxieties on their, on their own. And then maybe it's something that you can help each other treat what's happening. Um, but also knowing that you can talk to your doctor about it, come to us with your questions, come to us with your concerns, and we're happy to help. Um, you're kind of only standing in your own way when you, when you stay silent about things. And so it, it's important that you know that people are willing to listen. Thank you, Ryan, for helping us unpack some of these lesser talked about men's health issues. You can find Ryan at the Urology Center of Iowa in Des Moines, Iowa. And join us in two weeks for a riveting conversation with Heidi Dyer, who is trying to open up the conversation around women's health issues, specifically perimenopause and the struggles she felt like she didn't really have support to get through during that time. And then find out what she's doing to help that community of women come together. If you like our podcast, please share it. Please put us out there and we'll see you in two weeks.